Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we turn to God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 11. We have been working our way through this Gospel of Mark. And if you were with us last week, you know that we saw Jesus finally reach the city of Jerusalem, which had been his goal and destination for the last several chapters. He arrived on a donkey. He headed into the temple. He cleansed his father's house. He fulfilled prophecy. And he demonstrated to anyone who was willing to pay attention that he was the long-promised king come to bring salvation to his people. That's what we saw last week. But interspersed in between this account of Jesus' arrival and his clash with the uh, religious authorities is a, a brief and perhaps a bit unusual account of Jesus and a fig tree. And it's this fig tree that we want to turn our attention to this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark 11. We're going to read verses 12 through 14, and then we'll skip down uh, to 20 through 25. Listen as we read God's Word. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now again, uh, Mark follows this with the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. But we're going to pick up after that in verse 20. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us this morning. We pray that your spirit would be with us to give us understanding that we might know what you have to say to us and might know your Son all the more. We pray it for his sake. Amen. Maybe we could begin this morning with a little uh, word association. What comes to your mind first if I say the word hypocrisy? Well, there's a number of things that might come to your mind. My guess is that politics and politicians probably taught the list. Uh, you have uh, senators who talk about the national debt and the importance of cutting government spending, and then they privately lobby for millions and billions of their pet projects and earmarks for their state. Or you have representatives who talk about the importance of climate change and then spend seven figures on their private jet flights and have the largest SUVs on the market. Or maybe you, maybe you think of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson 
uh, who instituted pandemic restrictions and publicly warned his citizens of, of penalties and then privately enjoyed his unmasked birthday party with family, friends, and co-workers on Downing Street. Now we could multiply examples, but you know what hypocrisy means. It involves claiming or appearing to be one thing publicly while acting or living differently privately. It's going through the right motions outwardly while not caring inwardly. Or maybe to give us a a word picture, it's appearing to be in full bloom from a distance but bearing no fruit on closer inspection. Which brings us right to Jesus' interaction with the fig tree here in Mark 11. And as we work through this passage this morning, I want us to see two things. I want us first to see the marks of a fruitless life. The marks of a fruitless life. And then on the other hand, I want us to see the marks of genuine faith. And Jesus addresses both of these in this conversation about figs and faith and forgiveness. So that's where we're headed. Let's jump in with verses 12 through 14 when we look at figs and the marks of a fruitless life. Now this episode at the fig tree has caused some consternation for some who ask all sorts of questions like, why was Jesus looking for figs and disappointed if it wasn't the season for figs in the first place? And even if he was disappointed in this tree, why did Jesus bring all the resources of divine power to curse a tree? And, and if he did, why did Jesus consider this tree shriveling act important enough uh, that Mark and Matthew included it in their Gospels? And so we have to recognize these questions and maybe we could work through them a bit. We'll start with the question of why was Jesus looking for figs if it wasn't the season for figs? And a number of suggestions have been put forth. I don't know if we know the answer for sure, but the explanation I found most sensible was from a prominent archaeologist who knows this region who noted that the vast majority of fig trees have the same life cycle in the nation of Israel. However, there are a few different varieties of fig trees that produce figs at different times of year. And typically, the indication from a distance that you might have one of those different trees is if it is in full bloom. If its leaves are out and and it's in bloom, you can expect that perhaps it would have figs. And so Jesus, seeing the tree in leaf from a distance, goes there wondering if this might be one of those trees, only to find, on closer inspection, it is barren. It belonged to the majority of trees and were not in season. Again, I can't be 100% sure that's correct, but it's a reasonable explanation. But even if that is true, it still begs the question, why does Jesus curse the fig tree? And why does Mark include it here? And to answer this, we need to remember that Jesus is not just the long-promised king who rode into the city on the donkey. He is also the long-promised prophet. God had promised in Deuteronomy 18 to raise up another prophet who would speak his words to his people. And all throughout the Old Testament, prophets frequently used symbolic acts to help God's people understand God's words of judgment and salvation and to to picture what God is, is saying to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He gives the disciples and he gives Israel and he gives us a concrete, visible picture to express an important spiritual truth. Well, what is that spiritual truth? 
Well, our first clue comes from the way that Mark has interspersed the cleansing of the temple into this parable or this action of the fig tree. See, in the ancient world, this was a common way of communicating that these stories are related to one another. You start one story, you insert another, and then you finish the first story. What you're telling people is these things belong together. They're telling you something about each other. And so Mark here is helping us understand that a tree which appears to be healthy and in full bloom but actually is barren with no fruit is a picture of the temple that Jesus entered and the worship that was happening there. The temple from outward appearances looked to be magnificent in size and beauty. It appeared to be a bustling center of sacrifices. Thousands upon thousands brought offerings to the Lord. But on closer inspection, Jesus found money tables and a den of robbers instead of the house of prayer or the God-honoring worship that he was looking for. The worship, particularly of these Jewish leaders, was spiritually barren. And on such fruitlessness, God pronounces judgment. I think if we're we're asking, well, how do we know that this is what Jesus intended here? I think a second clue comes from the Old Testament itself. Because see, the Old Testament several times uses this picture of a fig tree without figs earning God's judgment. Jeremiah 8, for instance, and Jeremiah calls out to Israel and condemns them for their sin and their backsliding. In verse 13, God declares, when I would gather them in, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the tree. And in response in Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah says, God has doomed Jerusalem to perish because of their sin. Or you might think of Micah chapter 7. Micah chapter 7 verse 1, God again cries out, woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. And God concludes in verse 4, The day of your punishment has come. In other words, a tree without figs was a metaphor for God's people who did not worship him nor obey him as they ought. And in both of these passages, such disobedience yields judgment. And so when we come to Jesus here, as he comes to this fig tree and does not find the fruit that his soul desires, he's not hangry. You know that state of crabbiness and and angriness that you get in when you're really hungry and so you do things that are slightly irrational in your frustration and and hunger? That's not Jesus here. He's not responding because of his hunger. No, when Jesus found this leafy but fruitless fig tree, He saw in it the prophetic picture of Jerusalem and and the temple straight out of the Old Testament. And he warned of God's judgment against them for their hypocrisy and disobedience. We have here a tension that we're going to see throughout the Holy Week. As Jesus arrives proclaiming, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He has come to bring salvation to his people. And yet he also issues a warning of judgment for disobedience. How that tension is going to be resolved remains to be seen, but we need to watch that as we work through this week. But before we move on, I want us to pause and to consider 
This picture that Jesus gives of, of a tree that looks healthy on the outside but bears no real spiritual fruit. This prophetic act that is directed against the Jewish leaders and the empty worship there in the temple is also a description we need to be on guard against in our own lives. I can't count the number of times I've heard stories that go something like this. Tammy in high school appeared to love Jesus. She went to youth group. She listened to Christian music. She talked regularly about her faith. But when she went off to college, things were different. She didn't have a ride to church, so she stopped going. The busyness of her schedule distracted her, but on the weekends, she started going to, to parties and hanging out with a worldly crowd of, of friends. And by her junior year, she said that she no longer believed in the Bible. Now, you might not have known it or guessed it in high school. Her faith had been only on the outside. Or, or stories like this. John was one of the most respected members of his church. He served as a deacon. He gave generously to special offerings. He was known for his big smile as he welcomed people on Sunday mornings. But at home, he was sullen and selfish. He enforced his role as leader of the home with an iron fist and often responded in anger when things didn't live up to his expectations. Well, what do these stories have in common? A public, apparently living faith that was actually barren or fruitless underneath. And so the question that I want to ask each of us this morning, students, Students, if you're growing up in a Christian home, going to a Christian school or, or youth group, you have every reason to live like a Christian right now. That gains you acceptance and approval while sin earns you a rebuke. But what happens when you switch environments? What happens if following Christ earns you a rebuke and loses you friends, while living like the world earns you acceptance? The key question for you to answer this morning is not, are you here in church? Are you doing the right things? The key question is, do you know that you are a sinner in desperate need of Jesus Christ? And have you looked to him alone for the hope and salvation you so desperately need? And adults, this isn't just for students. Is church a good routine for you so that hopefully your kids will grow up and be moral rather than rebellious? Is it an opportunity to be affirmed in your service or generosity? Or do you know your sin and your need of a Savior? And have you pursued that Savior with your whole heart? The question is, does your life not just show proof of outward leafy greenness, but is the fruit of the Spirit sown in private and demonstrated in your life? That's a question we need to ask ourselves. And we do well to take this warning seriously because Jesus' response to a person whose public life is actually barren is to pronounce a curse of judgment. And his response matches his words in John 15 when he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus' actions and his warning begs us to examine our hearts and to look to Christ in faith that his spirit might bring about the genuine fruit of faith in our lives. 
Well, that brings us really to the second part of the passage this morning, because Jesus, having warned his disciples against a barren religious life and the marks of a fruitless life, now goes on in verses 20 to 25 to talk about a life of faith. What are the marks of a life of faith? Now, I want you to remember that Jesus and his disciples have been going into Jerusalem by day and back out to Bethany again at night. And so each morning, they're roughly taking the same commute into the city. And so in this morning, as they're on their morning commute, chatting about whatever they chat about on their morning commute, maybe before their coffee has fully set in, they pass this tree that's withered, and all of a sudden it hits Peter. This is the same tree Jesus cursed yesterday. And he's amazed, and he points it out to Jesus and says, Jesus, look, this is the tree you cursed. It's already dead from the roots. Of course, Jesus isn't surprised because it's a fulfillment of his word. But it gives Jesus opportunity in verse 22 to call his disciples to faith. I want you to notice a few things with me. Notice first that Jesus' statement is not an invitation or suggestion. He doesn't say, well, guys, it would be a great thing if you decided to, you know, have faith here. No, it's an imperative. It's a command. It says, have faith in God. R.C. Sproul notes that trusting God is the moral and ethical and religious duty of every creature because to not trust God is to impugn the integrity of his word and his character. You know, as, as parents, we don't come to our kids and say, well, you know, kids, if you decide you'd like to obey us, that'd be a really good idea, I think. You know, we don't do that. We, we tell them it is their duty to obey because God has put us in authority over them while they are in our home. But how much more is our creator, is God worthy of our trust and obedience? Faith in God is the only morally justifiable response to who God is for everyone. But it is the particular duty and responsibility of anyone who would be Jesus' disciple. And so Jesus looks at them and says, have faith in God. But notice also with me that faith is uniquely expressed in prayer. Having urged his disciples to have faith, Jesus then in verses 23 and 24, immediately twice gives prayer as a tangible expression of what faith looks like. And I think given our tendency towards self-reliance, And the near universal testimony in the church that Christians don't believe that they pray as they ought. This bears repeating every chance we get. One of the most tangible marks of faith in God is our quickness to bring every desire and every situation before him in prayer. I want you to notice also that not only does he urge us to pray... He also calls us to pray without doubting in our hearts. There's a continuous throughout Scripture opposition between faith and doubting. And so if we are going to pray with faith, we are not to doubt. Now I think it's important for us to make sure we understand the distinction in Scripture between uncertainty, where we might not know an answer about something, and doubt, which does not believe that God can or will answer. You see, Abraham and Job and David and, and Paul, and they all turned to God with questions. They asked questions like, how long, O Lord, until you respond? They asked questions like, why are you allowing this suffering? It doesn't seem consistent with what I know. They asked those questions. But those asking those questions to God, 
of God is very different from doubting that God can be trusted in the midst of it. Jesus says that the prayer of faith is to be offered without doubting in our hearts. It's really the same point that James makes in James chapter 1. When James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is an unstable man in all his ways. Now, while doubt is a sin that the blood of Christ can cover just like all of our sins, Jesus himself is calling us to pray with faith and confidence in the character and the word of God that have been demonstrated again and again. And so if we ask the question of of Jesus, what is this first mark of, of genuine faith in practice? He begins by calling us to a life of active prayer that believes that God hears and answers prayer. Finally, I want you to notice that this prayer of faith has great power. Now, we have to be careful here. Many of you probably know that these verses have been taken out of their context and used to build whole theologies that are incorrect. Theologies that would state, well, read what Jesus says. Clearly, if we believe it, we can have it. And if we don't have it, it's because we didn't believe enough. But this is not what Jesus is teaching. After all, Jesus himself prayed that the cup might pass from him if it be the Father's will. And the Father's will was that the cup not pass from him. So clearly, you can't just name it, believe it, and have it. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus does teach is that the prayer of faith has great power and that God always answers when we pray with faith. And several commentators noted that if Jesus was teaching his disciples while they walked into Jerusalem here, they would have, on the skyline, been able to literally see where a small mountain used to be. But Herod had literally dug it up and had it transported around one of his nearby garrisons as earthworks around. And so some wonder if Jesus is using this as an object lesson and saying, you think moving mountains is hard, the prayer of faith can do much more than that. Or it's also possible that Jesus is using this phrase the way we would use it, that moving mountains is a phrase to express the extent of what God will do and his power in answer to prayer. But either way, the point is the same. And it's the same point that James makes in James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. I want to suggest that when we come to these verses, we often spend so much of our time trying to say what they don't mean that we sometimes forget what they do mean. That prayer comes with great power and that God answers prayer. And if we aren't convinced of that, just ask Dimitri who was imprisoned for 17 years for his faith under the Soviet Union. And at last, lied to, beaten down, and tortured, he agreed that on the following morning he would sign statements renouncing his faith. But that night, his family sensed a particular need to pray, and so they gathered in the living room of their home and prayed for Dimitri. And the Holy Spirit gave Dimitri a particular sense that his family was praying for him that very night. And so... He went to bed and woke up with a new resolve not to renounce his faith. And so when those soldiers came in, he said, I have changed my mind. I am not renouncing my faith. And in a stunning miracle of God, 
Instead of killing him as promised, he was released and restored to his family. Or just ask the mother who fed her children the last crust of food in Siberia around the same time, who prayed that God might give food to her children, who woke up the next morning to a knock at her door from a man who lived 20 miles away, who said, God told me you needed food. I have food for you. Just ask Peter, who was chained in prison, but the believers were meeting and praying for him, and the Lord came in the night and brought him out and restored him to his people. Just ask so many people here in our sanctuary this morning who have prayed and seen the Lord answer prayer. Again, I am not saying that if you have enough faith, you just get any blessing you want. That's not what we're saying. But what we are told is that God will hear and answer And he will always hear an answer for our good in his glory. In fact, if you like verb tenses, and you're looking at uh, Mark 11 verse 24, note the verb tense there. When Jesus tells his disciples to pray and to believe that you have received it, as in the confidence in God's answer is so great that you have already received it when you pray. A few weeks ago, I came across a line from Tim Keller in one of his devotionals, which I think expressed this so well. Keller wrote this. He said, God always answers our prayers the way we would want him to if we knew what he knew. And of course, if we desired what he desired. God always answers our prayers the way we would want him to if we knew what he knew and we desired what he desired. That's the kind of answer we can expect. And so this first mark of genuine faith will be an active life of prayer that believes God's faithfulness to answer in his good providence. But finally, in verse 25, Jesus offers us a second mark of genuine faith, and that is forgiveness. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you. And your trespasses. Once again, Jesus does not suggest forgiveness. He does not say that forgiveness would be a good idea. He does not say, as we hear from some uh, therapists today, that forgiveness is really good for you. So you, you should consider doing it. No, he calls us to forgive. And he connects our willingness to forgive others with God's willingness to forgive us. Now, just to clarify, we should probably review what forgiveness is. When we talk about forgiveness, we're not necessarily talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation is the hope and the goal in the vast majority of situations, aside from some of safety or or abuse. But restored relationship always requires two parties. It requires both to work towards that. But even if reconciliation never happens, you and I are still called to and responsible to forgive. This forgiveness does not deny the significance of the hurts you have experienced. This forgiveness bears the cost ourselves rather than requiring it of another person. To quote Tim Keller again, he puts it this way. He says, to forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself rather than requiring it of the person who hurt you. It gives up the right to seek repayment for the one who harmed you. And Keller argues that forgiveness always involves three commitments. First, that we will not bring up the wrong to the person who hurt you in order to punish or manipulate them. Second, we will not bring up the wrong with others in order to gossip 
or harm their reputation. And third, that we will not bring up the wrong with ourselves in order to keep our bitterness or our anger hot. And while actually feeling this forgiveness may be a process, it begins with this decision to make and pursue these promises as the attitude and action Jesus calls us to as his people. And I want to point out one other thing in the text here, that Scripture does not put any limit on the kinds of actions we are to forgive. Do you notice what Jesus says? If you have anything against anyone, you are to forgive. That's pretty comprehensive. And we might say, well, maybe that was just Jesus putting it that way. But I think the Bible backs up this comprehensiveness. Just consider some of the examples of forgiveness we see in Scripture. Joseph, who forgives his brothers for throwing him in a pit and selling him into slavery where he wound up in prison for decades. Or Stephen, who called on God to forgive those who were stoning him while they were stoning him. These are comprehensive examples. I think one of the most powerful displays of forgiveness in recent history came in a courtroom in October of 2019. White police officer Amber Geiger had pled guilty and was sentenced to prison for killing a black man, Botham Jean, in his apartment. And while protests were ringing outside the courtroom, Botham's 18-year-old younger brother, Brant Jean, took the stand for his victim impact statement. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time how much you have taken from us. I think you know that, he began. Then he continued... I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I wasn't going to say this in front of my family or anyone else, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want what is best for you. I think that giving your life to Christ would be the best thing, and I think that's what Botham would want you to do as well. But again, I want to tell you, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. He then looked up to the judge and said, Am I allowed to give the defendant a hug? please. And there in that courtroom, this young man shocked the nation and gave this display of forgiveness that could not be explained by anything other than the work of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest if if there is anyone here struggling with bitterness or anger, that we hold up the hurts you are concerned with to the hurts against Joseph and Stephen and Brant Jean And ask ourselves, if we're convincing ourselves that our bitterness or lack of forgiveness is legitimate, consider their attitude, which is the one that Christ has called us to as his people. We'll step back and consider Jesus' words. On the one hand, we have a pattern that can only expect judgment. A pattern of a life that may appear godly from a distance from its patterns or or habits, but up close, when the heart is exposed, we find no true obedience or love of God, no true fruit of godliness. And such hypocrisy must be repented of for the sake of our souls. On the flip side, there is the life of genuine faith. And Jesus gives us two markers of this life. On the one hand, that it takes all things to the Lord in prayer and believes God, not doubting him. And second, that it demonstrates forgiveness that cannot be comprehended by the world because it reflects and imitates the forgiveness God has given us in Jesus Christ if we have trusted him. And that is the fruit that Christ desires to find on the trees that are rooted in him. 
So may we look to him and be rooted in him that his spirit may bring this fruit in us. Let's pray. Father, you have given us this parable acted out in real life that warns us against a public pattern of religious activity that is barren of genuine worship and love of God. Father, if there is anyone here this morning going through those motions who has not given their hearts and their selves to their Savior, might they do that this morning? And Father, for all of us, if we looked to our Savior by faith, would you work in us by your Spirit these marks of prayer, the prayer that believes God and trusts him and his answers, and prayer that is accompanied by a life of forgiveness, a life that reflects God's forgiveness of us. So, Father, I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.